Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. I'm Max Brown, and my guest today is Joel Peterson, the chairman of JetBlue Airways. And Joel has been with JetBlue Airways for over 20 years, 12 years as chairman, and he's the former chairman at the Hoover Institution, a founding partner of Peterson Partners and Salt Lake City-based investment firm with over a billion dollars under management. And he's a business leader and an investor and a teacher who's worked firsthand with over 2,300 businesses, hundreds of partners, and thousands of leaders. Since 1992, Peterson has been on the faculty at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, teaching courses in real estate investment, entrepreneurship, and leadership. And he was one of the original seed investors for several unicorns helmed by his former students. So I am really grateful, Joel, that you could join me on this podcast today. Thank you for your time. Well, I'm so delighted to be with you, Max. This will be fun. It, it's great. And of course, you wrote a new book that just came out. And so I'd love to talk about that today as well. And in light of everything that's going on, I just, I'm really grateful that you could share your experience with just all of our listeners around what does it mean to lead in really trying times? And of course, your new book talks about that. But we talk about leadership a lot. Yeah. And there's a lot of leadership books out there. So why this book? Why now? When we've been talking about leadership for, you know, at least the last 40 or 50 years, it's been a big, big topic. It's a huge topic. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of references. If you go to Google, I think there's something like two million uh, hits for leadership. So yeah. you would think everything has been said about leadership. I've tried to define uh, an, the observations that I've made about leaders who are truly entrepreneurial, those who can create durable change. And they have elements of all kinds of different sorts of leaders. They're not pure entrepreneurs. They actually understand complexity. They understand policy making. They understand the politics of leadership. So they understand various features of different kinds of leaders, but they actually are uniquely able to create change that sticks, that mm -hmm. other people can then manage. So I think the world needs more entrepreneurial leaders. And I actually think at this moment in time when all businesses are having to reimagine themselves, this notion of becoming an entrepreneurial leader is particularly topical. Boy, I, I, I absolutely agree. And the timing couldn't probably be better in that regard because everyone is being forced back to original ways of thinking and creativity and innovating. But to your point, it's not just about being able to come up with a good idea. It's about how do you create the sustainable leadership through it to see yeah. it to execution. Is that, is that where we're headed? Yeah, and, and I, th I actually think that this couldn't be a more uh, opportune time to take a look at this, and it couldn't be a worse time to launch a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, there, it, it's a crazy time. It really is. It's so hard to articulate. But I would love to talk about the elements of this piece for just a moment, the hallmarks of entrepreneurial leadership. What do you believe? And I think you, you've started there already, but an entrepreneur or a manager can master these skills and this mindset. Um, but, but, you're, but you suggest in the book that it's not just that it comes inherently. You have to learn these things. What are the elements that we have to learn? Well, I think it's, it is a little bit like, um, it was Malcolm Gladwell that said, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. Most things can be learned, we've, uh, we've discovered. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, what I tried to do is boil down, what is it that these entrepreneurial leaders do that others don't? Mm -hmm. So there are people sitting in corner offices who are fundamentally presiders. They maintain the status quo and they're good at it. And that can be a really important thing. 
There are others that uh, manage complexity. Great mm -hmm. managers are all about complexity. There are administrators who understand policy and the implications, second and third order consequences, and they're really good at that. Politicians know how to reward friends and punish enemies. Hmm. They understand power. And uh, so there are those kinds of power leaders. But the entrepreneur typically is somebody who lights new fires, who sees around corners, who anticipates the future. But many, many entrepreneurs are unable to turn the bonfire into a wildfire, <laughs> into something that can really grow and sustain. In fact, most of these entrepreneurial ventures fail. <laughs> uh, seven out of 10 fail within 10 years. And so the idea is, how can we take these things that entrepreneurs do and add to it the other tools that other leaders have and come up with an entrepreneurial leader who really can create a durable enterprise that can be led by others? That's the idea. And I think it is an important uh, idea. Uh, it, it really is. And it, it strikes me that what are you looking for then when you decide to invest with someone? So I'm, I'm st starting out by, it, it kind of depends on the level of investment. So, mm -hmm. so not the level, but the, uh, the, the uh, point in time. Mm. Uh, if you're backing an, a venture, you're really looking to underwrite the human being, the human capital. Mm. Is this a person with character? Is this a person with persistence, who's hardworking, who changes course? Um, so the, the, the pure entrepreneur has certain human characteristics that are really important, and you're really backing that. Mm -hmm. If it's a business that is a little bit further down the road, typically they'll have customers, mm -hmm. they'll have um, an EBITDA, uh, earnings that you can underwrite, they'll have a product that either is protected um, uh, by patents or something else, so that you can underwrite certain things. So you're, you're really looking for different things, but I would say that more important than anything is the quality of the leadership. That typically wins year in, year out. Yeah, boy. And I think that's why, coming back to the very beginning of why leadership and why again today, because it is that important. Yeah. Well, uh, business is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you really are relying on the entire team, but often you don't get beyond the leader. Mm -hmm. Whoever is the leader is often uh, helping to determine the priorities. And that really determines what peak you're going to climb. Yeah. Uh, becomes all deterministic. It, in the book, you talk about the foundation really begins with trust. And again, big topic. A lot of people have heard about it. And a lot of people even assume that, oh, yeah, we do that really, really well. But in my experience, I would love to hear yours. Trust actually has to be earned and it takes a while to do. How, does, how do you secure trust and how, why is it so hard to do it? Well, trust is the operating system of a life well-led and a company well-managed uh, and led. Mm. And it, it comes a conversation at a time. And you really have to think about laying down a molecule at a time. Every conversation, every meeting, every follow-up, every promise delivered. You know, ultimately, we build trust by delivering on promises. Mm -hmm. Our brand is our promise in the marketplace. And if we deliver on that promise, trust increases. If we violate it, trust decreases. Mm -hmm. So this trust account takes a long time to build up. It's very powerful. It's very compelling, particularly in times of a turnaround. And it's fragile. It mm -hmm. can be destroyed in a moment. My goodness, I was trying to write down so many pieces during that. And I know that we're having this conversation that I can hear it again. But you just, it struck so many chords when you said that. You know, the brand is our promise. And a lot of people say that and get it. Um, but we've seen big examples of companies, you know, that have made big promises. They put beautiful mission, vision, value statements on their websites and have fallen short. 
and and not intentionally sometimes, but but you know sometimes they have a bad metric that people cut corners on, and they permit that to run wild within the company because they're getting their numbers. But but trust is different, um, and the ethics and the brand behind that it feels different. It's worth more when you do this right. Absolutely, and everybody's going to stumble from time to time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, no matter how uh, pure our intentions are. We'll stumble. We'll fumble the ball from time to time. So overcoming that, dealing with that immediately, confronting reality, all those things really become important. And you can actually build stronger trust in the face of a failure uh, or in the face of hard times. I I think that's one of the challenges people have right now is every business is facing a new challenge. It's having to reimagine itself. Imagine what the brand is that it would like to have emerging from this coronavirus uh, Mm -hmm. crisis. And so uh, they, it can, it can um, emerge with a stronger brand or with a damaged brand it doesn't recover from. Boy, and that's a big deal. And, and I, it, this all relates to me around your next message in the book around integrity and how we show up. So if we do fumble, if we do make mistakes, the ability to recover really, really starts with, hey, I'm willing to own that, right? But I'm willing to own that and I can move forward. I, I have a lot harder problem with the leader or the company who is unwilling to own it. Yeah, and that destroys trust. I actually wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called The Ten Laws of Trust. And I tried to factor analyze you know, what makes up trust. Why do we trust mm-hmm. some people and not others? Why are some organizations high trust organizations and others low trust organizations? And one of the things is the high trust organizations, the high trust leaders admit their mistakes. They deliver bad news as well as good news. They talk before, during, and after events, and they're able to really be vulnerable, to be humble, to admit mistakes, and then go about fixing them. Yeah. And, 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 and the integrity definition you defined in this book, you talk about closing the say-do gap. You know, what we say and what we do to make sure that that actually stays in balance. How does one maintain a better say-do ratio? Well, I think uh, one of the things you do is you don't overpromise. Mm-hmm. You don't promise something you can't deliver. I think you, we see in politicians a lot of times many promises that get broken. Consequently, our trust in politicians is at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. I think 8% of people trust politicians. I mean, what a brand mm-hmm. to have. So you don't overpromise and then you over-deliver. You just make sure that if you've made a promise, you deliver on it, and if you're gonna fail on it, you go immediately to people and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, looks like such and such may not happen. You don't spin things, you don't wait till Friday to deliver news, hmm. uh, you really m- remain transparent. Yeah, and, and it, it, it easier said than done sometimes, right? There's a temptation sometimes to say, maybe we, sh- we should withhold this. I've seen leaders who sometimes feel like, if knowledge is my only power, then I'm going to hoard that power. When in fact, being transparent with that knowledge would actually be helpful to the entire organization. It would not only be helpful to the organization, it would be helpful to that leader mm-hmm. and his or her credibility. Uh, we don't think less of somebody when they say, I made a mistake, here's what I'm gonna do to fix it. Mm-hmm. We do hold them accountable, however, when they don't admit it and we discover it a year later and that they tried to sweep it under the rug. That will destroy trust that may not be able to be recovered. Boy, it's a a huge point. Uh, You know, you you have me actually taking a a bit of a detour for a moment, but I'm thinking about Clayton Christensen's work at Harvard and your work at Stanford, and you're teaching these students at Stanford. Is there any of the messages within the business school that you wish that they would emphasize more 
to help them understand how to become better leaders? Because I think that's what Clayton Christensen did when he wrote, How Will You Measure Your Life? Yeah, he really popped up to 30,000 feet and said, what are the meta issues, the meta issues of life? And how do I think about that? I ask my students, what is winning? Hmm. And ask them to ask themselves that question, which is a similar kind of a thing. But in a business, you say, what is winning? What yeah. peak are we going to climb? And what will it look like? We've done that. And I think it's really vital to have that in mind. And really, if you get a team on the field who all agrees on what winning is, mm-hmm. you don't have to motivate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're aligned towards that, that, that ultimate goal, that ultimate outcome. Exactly. What would you say to those who are struggling right now? We talked a little bit of, you know, obviously the COVID pandemic is, is just crazy because it's disrupting everything. Um, but, but regardless of COVID or not, there's been a lot of people that just get stuck. What, what do you say to those people who are struggling? How do, we dif- how do we navigate in difficult times COVID or some other struggle? So uh, I think you navigate difficult times the same way you do good times. And I think people forget that, that in good times, you also have to assess what is frivolous? What are the hobbies we're involved in? How are we not uh, living up to our promises? But I, in, in every case, I think you have to start out by saying, uh, what is reality? And the reality is, where is the market going? What are our competitors doing? What do our customers need? And how are our employees doing? What do they need? How do we delight them as well? So you're going to emerge from good or bad times with a brand. Mm-hmm. I think in bad times, you really, your brand may be somewhat different, may, may be forced to evolve. And so I think you want to really think hard about what your brand is. At JetBlue, we were talking about, mm-hmm. we're, uh, our brand is known for safety. In fact, that's our number one value is safety. So as we started talking about the brand that we want to emerge uh, from this crisis with, we said, well, safety now extends to health. Mm. We want to make sure that people understand that flying on a plane is still the safest air you're going to breathe. Mm. And we're going to be taking people's temperatures, having them wear masks, probably not sitting people in middle seats. We're going to be doing all kinds of things so that we reinforce this brand of, of safety. Uh, but I think in every case, you, you're going to have to confront reality, remain optimistic, uh, be action-oriented, make timely decisions, no recriminations for the mistakes that you make, and then just keep communicating lavishly and with kindness. I think that's one of the things that uh, can come out of this sort of a thing mm-hmm. is an increased kindness, human relationship. You know, if somebody talked said something about, um, you know, social distancing doesn't mean... Uh, becoming more estranged from one another. We can actually become closer to one another, even though we're physically uh, distanced. I I totally agree. Uh, I'm curious, and I don't know how much you can talk freely about this, but the JetBlue leadership going forward, if you're not flying people in the middle seats, how does this work for you in terms of your business? I'm a frequent flyer, but when I hear, you know, you're looking out for the business, that frequent flyer who wants to be safe, that gives me comfort. It really does. And you're speaking to the value of the customer. How do, how do they navigate going forward? Where, does, where do they pull optimism uh, going forward if this new reality may be getting less revenue per flight? Yeah, it starts with your values. You know, everything has to be driven by values. If you think about hmm. values as your priorities. So everything starts with priority. And by the way, you have competing priorities and really which one will obtain. So for us, we've just decided safety obtains. Whatever we do, it has to be safe. So that's going to be our number one priority. And then taking care of our customers 
and taking care of our employees are, is our number two value. So that's going to obtain over a lot of other things. Hmm. So there may be new business models that come out. There may be new ways of doing things. The fares may have to increase for, hmm. the, for those who survive. I'm guessing, and I may be wrong about this, but I'm guessing that travel will come back. Hmm. Uh, some people are predicting that it won't, but I know of, of so many of my students who've deferred wedding plans, who've deferred meeting with family, uh, who love travel, who are eager to travel. Uh, so I think there's a big pent-up demand. And I think if we can demonstrate safety and care, uh, people are going to come flocking back. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm ready to travel. And, and it's crazy because <laughs> I've, all, I've always flown a lot. And yeah. it has been really strange when I go into my, my booking apps and I see no flights on there. It is okay. just, it's, it's a little bit unnerving. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm with you. And, I, and I'm really grateful that, you know, we could have this conversation. In the book, you talk about changing your operating system or rewriting your operating system. And a moment ago, when you defined trust, you said the operating system is the life of a life well led. Yeah, trust is the operating system. Of a life uh, yeah, trust is the operating system of a life well led. And then in the book, you talk about, hey, if you really want to develop core values, you have to rewrite that operating system. Well, what does that look like? In, yeah, most of us inherited a way to see the world. We have yeah. a lens through which we see it, and it was maybe determined genetically at some level. Uh, our parents had a big influence, our peers, our teachers. And so we grow up thinking the world looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. But we have to understand that this is an inherent. The world may not look exactly as we see it. In fact, it doesn't look mm -hmm. as we see it. So this idea that you can own your own operating system. You can figure out what operating system works and what doesn't. And you can then adopt those things that work and reject those that don't work. People who say, well, I'm just that way, or that's how I was raised, or the devil made me do it, or whatever, are actually opting out. They're, uh, it's, the, it's a cheap way out of responsibility. So I grew up as the oldest of five children, four years older than my next sibling and i grew up thinking i was the center of the universe hmm. my parents were great but they made me really feel uh, overly important and so i i ended up with this idea that uh, i was uh, i was the center of every decision hmm. and how i felt was how things needed to be and so i had to rewrite that hmm. that was that wasn't truth it wasn't reality it wasn't how other people saw the world but it was hard it was an instinct that was hard to abandon and so I developed this mantra that said, it's not about me. And I said that to myself many, many times when I'd come to these moments when I'd feel emotions boiling up or I'd feel like I needed to do something. It's not about me. It's yeah. about the mission. And over time, I, I actually learned to see the world through other people's eyes. And I kind of abandoned my own self-interest uh, and, and self-referencing. So I know it can be done. I, I love that. How powerful is that when you, as you keep that in mind, it's not about me. It's yeah. not about me. Do you recommend that to your leaders? Do you recommend that to the teams around you when you're working with them to remind well, themselves about this? Yeah, I recommend that they think about what is getting in their way. Get feedback. Mm -hmm. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. Mm -hmm. It will let you know where you're failing. And if you embrace negative feedback, you can actually grow and tell mm -hmm. people you've heard it and what you're going to do about it. But once you get that feedback, then say, what am I going to do to change that? And yeah. I think developing your own set of mantras. I mean, another one for me was, I am not my emotions. Yeah. You know, and so that separated me from how I was feeling about something. I could decide 
the decision I could make the decision I wanted to make, not the one I felt like making. Boy, and, uh, that was the final one that I that really changed my outlook on life was uh, telling myself several times a day, I have everything I need. Hmm. And that really calmed me down. I was one of these people who used to blame, you know, you do these joint book reports in school, and I would blame the other people for not doing their work well or for not getting it in on time or, or whatever. And just telling myself, I don't need to have the, the dog eat my homework excuse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, we have a sign in our kitchen that says gratitude turns what we have into enough. Yeah, yeah. Having and enough. Just, this idea of having enough. Yeah. Really, I needed that. And so for me, those were the things that I needed to kind of fix my operating system so I could be an effective leader. I, I don't tell other people that that's what they should do yeah. other than figure out where are they falling down and develop a short mantra that they can remember. And don't work on more than three at a time. Mm -hmm. People can remember three things. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and by the way, it may take years. You may for years be saying, it's not about me. Yeah. You know, until fundamentally, it, you really realize it is not about you. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you can rewrite your own operating system. You know, the thing I love about that too, in, in my past experience, and I, I'm, I'm the oldest of five as well, by the way. And, mm -hmm. and then my folks adopted eight more. So I'm the oldest oh of 13. God. Wow. <laughs> I think some of my siblings would say they want me to repeat that more often. It's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. I do find, I honestly find that when I believe that, I actually have a better connection with people. Absolutely. And I make a better connection when I'm speaking, when I'm sharing, when I'm talking. We have better listenership on podcasts where the guests and, and when we get into this flow where it's just about creating value for whoever can hear it. Yeah, if you can stay focused on what the listeners are hearing, yeah. how it might be impacting them, and not worry about making your own mistakes or getting across your own points, really listen to the question yeah. and try to respond to it in a way that will help others. It changes. It's transformative. It's transformative. I really hope listeners can reflect on how could that bless their own life? You know, how could that make their own life different? Because it is transformative. I, I do believe that. So that it, that it not about, it's not about me really caught my attention in reading your book. So thank you for that. You know, is there something you've learned new since writing the book? I always find that, you know, after I've written something, I could have said it differently or I would have thought about, Ooh, that would have been good to put in there. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things. I, I, I always, I'm self-critical. And so I always look at it and say, oh, I wish I'd said this differently or better, or given a better example. Or, so there's a lot of things like that. But fundamentally, I'm really happy with the framework because it yeah. simplifies what it takes to become an entrepreneurial leader. You have to have these foundational elements drilled to bedrock. And if you don't build a high trust organization, mm -hmm. if you don't figure out which peak you're going to climb and get everybody belayed, everybody climbing the same peak. If you don't get the right team of climbers working together and trusting each other, and then if you don't execute, if you don't deliver on promises, you will not have a durable enterprise. Mm -hmm. And to boil it down to those four simple to articulate but difficult to execute steps, mm -hmm. I think is the essence. And so I'm not going to beat myself up over not saying it perfectly. Well, I, I think it, I think it's very succinct and concise. And it, and like you said, we can't do too much. We need to remember things. Like you said, the remember the threes is very helpful. Um, and it, we, we do focus on trying to create better cultures within the companies. Adam Grant, the organizational psychologist recently reflected and said, but we've seen some companies that are so focused on culture that they've made it a cult. 
rather than yeah. a culture. And in, in to the point where the cult says you're not allowed to speak about the things that are going wrong. And yeah. I've, I've seen companies like that. Yeah. And no, it's very unhealthy. Yeah, it's absolutely unhealthy. The idea that culture trumps everything mm-hmm. uh, is a big mistake. You know, I, I always say that, uh, you know, values are really the initial driver of culture. And again, values are priorities. Mm-hmm. What do you put above other things? And I have three values that I apply to every one of my organizations. Uh, the first is respect. Mm-hmm. I find if there's not respect, not just respect for customers, respect between employees, respect for competitors, but respect is a really powerful uh, value mm-hmm. and it shows up in many, many different ways. The second is profits. Mm-hmm. I've never found a culture that is really healthy that is unable to generate profits. And again, if you think about and so profits has kind of a, is become kind of a dirty word in mm-hmm. our society, but fundamentally profits are really simply the measure of what people are willing to pay you for what it is you're delivering to them that has real value Mm -hmm. versus what it costs you to produce it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have profits, you can't pay people, you can't grow, you can't discover new ways. So profits is the second thing. And then the third thing is growth. I've never found a really healthy culture that is not growing. Now, there are periods of stasis, of consolidation and whatever, but fundamentally, a healthy culture is one that's growing. And a healthy human being is one that's growing and learning and developing. So I think to me, respect, profits, and growth are the three fundamental priorities that seem to drive healthy cultures. And if your culture is about feel-good stuff, it's really not a very healthy culture. Yeah. And and, and yet those other things can happen. Certainly we can feel that happen. united, right? They do happen because do all happen. these other yeah, good things are happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I agree with that, and I really appreciate you sharing. I want to be respectful of your time today, and of course, for our listeners, um, one last piece around that. So how do we make it safe for people when we feel like something's wrong in the company, we're trying to manage, or we have a hard relationship that's happening in a company? You know, 20, 30 years almost now, we've talked about people don't leave companies. They typically leave a bad manager or a bad relationship, and which is, again, why I think that reinforces why this leadership message is still so important today, because these leaders can't just come out of, of business school with a solid background in, in economics and finance and accounting and not understand the interpersonal skill that's required to still improve that relationship. Yeah, the soft skills, uh, what they call the soft skills are vital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people hire you for the hard skills and fire you for how you execute mm-hmm. uh, on them. So the soft skills are really important. Um, and uh, so. Yeah, we have to do them both, don't we? Yeah. yeah. So last piece of advice for anyone that is listening today, what would you say in terms of life well lived? I mean, you've done so many cool things and lead, led so many different companies. You met so many different people. In a lifetime of reflections and all these things you're doing right now, any piece of advice or things you'd like to share? Well, I love this word fiduciary. You know, this idea that we are really responsible for others. We are our brother's keeper. Mm -hmm. And I think the more people can recall that as they're going about things, you know, how do you lighten the burdens of your customers? You know, in in effect, really what businesses do is they solve problems for customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may not have articulated them, but that's really what they're doing. You're doing the same thing for your employees. You're building teams. These actually enliven people. They make their lives better. And the more that you can say, I am a fiduciary for these other people, for this enterprise, for this set of values, the more meaningful life is. And, um, and actually, the more profitable 
uh, growth that you'll experience uh, and the greater respect you'll find between people. Joe Peterson, author of Entrepreneurial Leadership, chairman at JetBlue Airlines. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Max. Great it's to be with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.